Hi, this is Ravi Pollock with PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program. We're here to present a replay of the awesome Fordham Cura Reverb Magazine launch event. Uh, it's a phenomenal reading with some of our well-known writers from behind the walls and recently released, all addressing the issues of mass incarceration. I'd like to thank Dr. Nia Witherspoon and her class for participating in this with us and doing an awesome curation job. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to Works of Justice, a podcast by Penn America. Dr. Nia Witherspoon. I'm really, really excited to host this event, um, co-host this event with Kate and Penn and, and Robbie um, and my class um, literary magazine workshop here at Fordham University. Um, yeah, welcome to the virtual launch of issue 21 of Cura. Um, yay, there would normally be clapping there, right? So strange. <laughs> So strange, all this, but we're here nonetheless. Um, so, uh, Cura, the full title is a literary magazine of art and action, and our issue is entitled Reverb Voices Against Mass Incarceration. Uh, and it is live now at curamag.com. So, we encourage you to check it out as soon as you uh, leave this launch party. Um, we have a really exciting set of, set of readings and performances coming up to share. Um, before we begin, I just want to do a round of thank yous for everyone that got us here right now. Um, the first person I want to thank is Sarah Gambito. I don't know if you're here, uh, Professor Gambito, uh, but Sarah was uh, the founding editor of Cura. Um, a magazine for art in action. So I'm just really grateful to Sarah for dreaming up the magazine uh, as a space where art and justice can come together and for the opportunity to engage as the editor um, in my position as multimedia writer in residence at Fordham. Um, and also for answering all of the incessant questions that accompanied the beginning of this semester um, about how, of, how all of this could work, how, how it would work. Um, I also want to thank the creative writing program that continues to fund and publish this magazine every single year uh, as a part of a class. So basically it's a class and the outcome of the class is that we have a published magazine at the end of class. Um, and so I'm grateful that the creative writing program continues to make that possible. Um, I want to thank our partners at Penn, Kate Meisner and Robbie Pollock. Uh, for introducing me to so many incredible writers and just being really generous with time and energy and, and, and presence um, throughout all of this. Could not have done it without you. Thank you. Um, I also want to thank Nicole Shalon Jr. because Nicole, who's my dear sister friend from college, introduced me to Kate at Penn, uh, at Penn's uh, prison writing program. And so without that connection and that level of trust there, I don't think we would have gotten as far as we did, as quickly as we did. Um, and Nicole will also is, is featured in this issue. So um, shout outs to Nicole all around and just for showing up for justice and writing in life in general. Um, 
And then I also just want to thank, most importantly, um, uh, I want to thank the artists, cultural workers, and contributors that have made this issue possible with your with your words and your sounds and your and your thoughts. Um, we're featuring theater artists, composers, writers, visual artists, activists, and cultural leaders. It's an incredible gathering of thoughts and minds and words and sounds. Um, and I'm really, really grateful to everyone that contributed for speaking against your own silences and showing up for this work. Um, I wanna thank the amazing students in my class without whom none of this also would have happened. You know, we've been in the editing room all semester trying to make sure this got off of its feet um, and they worked really hard. Um, I also wanna thank Ezra Lee, who is the incredible designer of the graphics and made sure that everything got on the web. So thank you to Ezra. Thank you also to Issy Asioma, who's my student assistant and who supported with video edit when I had no idea what to do. Um, so now I'm gonna share my letter from the editor with you, just so that you know a little bit more about when and where I enter this process. Um, and then after that, we'll have a student from our fundraising team, Isa Gonzalez, um, who's gonna be your MC for this event. Um, and she will introduce um, each of our readers or performers before they go up. Um, and then after that, we'll have a panel featuring our pen partners and two students, Liam Ryder and Amanda Chu. There's a whole world in there, said my uncle across a candlelit table. He had driven 2,354 miles across the country from our home city of Philadelphia to Phoenix, where I was a professor at Arizona State University to bring me my car so that I was spared the taxing drive. This drive was a tremendous act of care, layered atop the many acts of care he had bestowed upon me during our lives up to this point. We shared a perfect dinner that night, me looking at my uncle and seeing my father, his other brother, and my grandfather, Big Dad, we called him. I said as much, to which my uncle poetically replied, three versions of the same man. His kind eyes flickered beneath the thick beard many associate with the nation of Islam. There's a whole world in there, he said. We had never talked about his time away when he was disappeared by the state for being a little too black and a little too free in his attempts to survive the crack epi epidemic. Perhaps this was what it meant to grow up. The unsaid things get said. He continued, doctors, lawyers, spiritual leaders of every tradition and artists, so many artists, there's a whole world in there. The comment stayed with me. I wished the world out here could see the world my uncle described, full of people trying their best to live full lives in conditions of exile where they were reduced to inmate numbers or well-meaning statistics. When the group that pitched Just Mercy in our theme selection process for Cura's 21st issue got the most votes from the class, I was quite anxious. How would the students, most of whom had not had mass incarceration touch their lives, learn to encounter with tenderness and reverence the precarities of this monster of injustice and the web of institutional violence it is tangled in? How would I reach writers who the state wanted to silence? How would I bring my lens of theater and performance to bear on this issue that is at the heart and soul of injustice in America? These are the questions that I sat with over the course of the semester. It was an honor to partner with PEN America's prison writing program to connect with incarcerated writers, most of whom would not have been able to receive the call for submissions in time without PEN's existing relationships. It was also especially exciting to be able to highlight some of PEN's incredible footage of documented performances from years past 
including a live reading of the poem that Brian Stevenson featured in Just Mercy, the class's initial inspiration. It was important to me to bring together incarcerated and non-incarcerated artists. As Kate Meisner, the director of Penn's program, reminded me in conversation, incarcerated writers must be recognized as a part of the larger creative community. In other words, for more than incarceration. Towards this end, I have invited in some of the most forward-thinking writers, musicians, and performing artists working at the intersection of art and social justice. I'm also thrilled that proceeds from our student fundraiser will go towards Black Mamas Bailout, an organization that supports Black mothers and caregivers returning to their families. I hope Reverb helps to move us towards imagining what justice could look like in the next millennia. It is not perfect, but it is an experiment and an inquiry towards the liberation of all of those incarcerated, not only by bars, but also by the social mattresses of racism, sexism, heterosexism, and transphobia that create them. Reverb joins the chorus of voices reverberating across time and space in protest of mass incarceration and the violence it has done, especially to black and brown communities in the United States. It is not the first attempt, nor will it be the last but it is my hope that it shares even just a little bit of what my uncle called the world in there, in solidarity. So now um, I'd love to call up Isa Gonzalez um, to take us to our next moment. Uh, Isa, are you there? Sorry, I forgot to unmute. <laughs> okay. Just before we begin in earnest, I wanted to just, um, as, as Professor Witherspoon said, I'm Isa. I was uh, part of the fundraising team of Cura this year. And I just wanted to let you guys, before we again begin in earnest, uh, let you guys know about our fundraiser. So our team has focused our fundraising efforts on supporting Black Mamas Bailout, which is a campaign by National Bailout seeking to raise awareness about the human and financial costs of money bail and emphasize its impact on Black mothers and caregivers. So the funds that we raise for this organization through our GoFundMe will go directly towards uh, providing supportive services for Black mamas and caregivers. We have currently raised $390 of our goal of $1,000, and we want to challenge you guys to help us make that goal by the end of this launch. Um, to begin with, uh, our artists uh, presenting their pieces for, the, uh, for this issue of Kira, uh, we are beginning with the wonderful Louise K. Wakaigan. Uh, Good job. <laughs> I, had, I got a little help with that one before we start. <laughs> um, Louise is enrolled at, forgive me for this, Odawa Zaga Igaing La Court Orielas Reservation in Northern Wisconsin. Louise is the recipient of the 2017 Penn Poetry First Place Prize for her poem, This Is Where. She is the first place winner of the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop Broadside Competition in 2016 with her poem Within. Louise's work has been published in Pen America's 21 Mythologies, The Moon Magazine, Doors Adjacent, 27th Leather, and Words in Grayscale, and the Asian American Writers Workshop, A World Without Cages. Her first collection of poems, This Is Where, will be published by Willow Books this spring. Louise, take it away. Hi, uh, you did a great job pronouncing my last name. It can be a little tricky. Um, Ojibwe is a tough language, um, but you did good. Um, so I'm really excited uh, to be here and to see all your lovely faces. Um, we make it through Zoom and I, I think we're doing good. Um, so hello from Wisconsin. So this morning I'm going to read my poem, 
those intricacies. <clears throat> Suspended throughout infinite discoveries, I've desired to return to that God's eye above the stairwell in Six Mile. I forced myself to enter that dark basement hallway where surrender was never a friend of mine. I lose myself there in that childhood home. I needed my father and he wasn't there ever. So I carry cellular memories storing fatherless echoes my heart shattered for, ones I became an introvert for, rebelled against my own body for. This mosaic of scars, individual burns and historical indigenous horrors buried deep throughout my mixed blood lineage. <clears throat> I resided my anemic body with stones and birch bark roots from Northern Wisconsin. I drifted in frigid waters in Gichigami, washing clean years of penitentiary sorrows barring my isolated and pale skin attached to elemental properties of Aki. Sweet, sweet Aki. Thank you. <laughs> All done. Hey, I can see you clapping. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, next up, we have Aaron Samuels who will be reading for Sterling Cunha. Aaron Samuels is the author of Yamakas and Fitted Caps, released by Wright Bloody Publishing. He's a recipient of fellowships from Cave Canum, Asylum Arts, and the Malay Colony for Arts. Samuels is a founding member of the Dark Noise Collective and ranked third place at the Individual World Poetry Slam. He currently lives in Los Angeles, where he serves as co-founder and CEO of Blavity Inc. Aaron Samuels will be reading for Sterling Cuneo, a 2019-2020 Pen America Writing for Justice Fellow, a 2019 Oregon Literary Arts Fellow, and a two-time Pen America Prison Writing Award winner. Published in The Marshall Project, Sterling's currently a University of Oregon undergrad majoring in crime, law, and society. At age 16, Sterling was sentenced to life without parole and has spent 26 years in prison where he's devoted himself to hospice volunteering mentoring younger prisoners, transforming the culture of street crime, and building peace. Sterling is a frequent contributor to community-based efforts to raise awareness around issues of mass incarceration, food scarcity, and restorative justice. And now we found out very last minute the surprise that Sterling Cudio and his entire writing group is here with us dialing in from the Oregon State Penitentiary. It's an honor to have you here and we it, would like to invite you to say a few words if you wish before we begin. Hey, what's up everybody? This is the restorative justice group, actually, the facilitators and former participants. There's more than what you see on the screen, but we got a like, quarantine area, social distancing, wow. not enough room for this little wow. camera. So thank you for including us. And maybe at the end, I can echo some thanks. But I just want to start off immediately saying thank you to Aaron Cates, Pen America, um, OSP Religious Service Supervisors, and just everybody that's made this possible and everybody that's tuning in. Thank you. Uh, great, great. It's honored. Um, Sterling, I didn't know you were going to be here. Uh, honored to be reading your words. Thank you for the work. Fighting Empathy. 
two men trapped inside a six by nine foot cell, concrete floor, toilet, sink, bed bunks, and tabletop welded to the one-eighth inch steel wall, blunt edges, sharp corners. The space is so small that no, that one man must sit or lie on the bed to allow the other movement. The iron barred door is locked. Shut the fuck up and get on your bunk. I'm sick of your shit, yelled the older prisoner, a big, full-bearded white guy with all visible skin covered in tattoos. Hey man, don't talk to me like that, said the younger guy, determined to be assertive. He's smaller and sports a thin mustache that looks like he just started growing facial hair. This cell block, my cell block, has five floors called tiers, 40 cells to a tier. Two tiers have double man cells. The guys are in a double cell below me. I can see them by standing and using the building's outside windows to catch a reflection. But I don't, I won't, it's not my business. One of prison's main survival codes is to mind your own business. If it doesn't directly involve you, then pay it no mind. Still, I can hear them. I'm about to stop talking and start beating your ass if you don't shut up. Dude, what's your problem? You're my fucking problem. Two days ago, there was a riot between the whites and the Mexican nationals, and the institution has been on lockdown. Lockdown means nobody leaves the cell. Officers pass out sack lunches containing two pieces of bread, a pack of peanut butter, and a bag of chips, usually smashed and passed through the bars. There's no showers, visits, or phone calls. Body odor and attitudes fill the air. I told you to shut your fucking mouth. Poom, poom, thud. Punches have distinct and unmistakable sounds. Glancing blows sound like flesh smacking skin. They sound worse than they are. Solid blows landing with full impact connect to tissue with a deeper tone, a thud. Fuck! I can hear the younger one grunt. It's clear who has the upper hand. I hear feet scuffle before the sound of bodies crashing into the wall shake my bunk. Vibrations reverberate across my back. I can feel their fight. I'm flooded with adrenaline. When I was 12, I lived amid violence and domestic abuse in my grandpa's house. That's when I first began listening to people fighting through walls. By age 13, I was living in the violent and criminally active households of my uncle. At age 14, I joined a culture of street crime that glorified violence. Then in 1994, at 16, I committed a violent crime and was sent to prison here. I've witnessed cruelty daily. Long ago, I'd learned to emotionally disconnect until I was desensitized to the violence around me. But the beating taking place below me is dredging up painful memories. So I don't mind my own business. I use the windows to check out the reflection of the assault below, where I see a familiar scene. One man pinning another beneath him while punching his head and body. Boom, boom, thud. And I remember my first cell fight. It was my first night in prison. On August 30th, 1994, I was sentenced to life without parole. That's when I was sent from the Benton County Jail to the Oregon Department of Corrections Intake Center located in Wilsonville at the time. I was 17 years old. The intake centers where prisoners were evaluated over a two week period and then placed in one of the state's other institutions. The building consisted of a long corridor with units branching off the main hall. I was processed, 
given a bedroll containing two blankets, a set of sheets, and a rule book, and escorted to a unit where I was assigned a cell with an older white guy. The county jail had kept me isolated due to my age. The guy at the intake center would be my first cellmate. You got good paperwork, kid? He asked before I even put down my bedroll. In convict code, if you have legal documentation proving you have not raped, molested, or testified against a crime, it is said you have good paperwork. Yes, I mumbled, handing him a large legal envelope containing my documents. Guys I met in the county jail with prison experience had told me to be prepared for this, but they hadn't prepared me for what came next. What color are you? I'm mulatto, I told him. As a kid, the issue of race was difficult for me. Although my mother was white, when parents in my Mesquite, Texas neighborhood told their kids not to play with coloreds, I was included. Yet among the black families, I was a mixed kid who acted white. Once, I asked my mama what race I was, and she said both, a mulatto. What's that? He was clearly confused. I have a light complexion, while my hair and speech are clearly ethnic. I'm frequently asked what I am. Half black, half white, I told him. You can't stay. I only sell up with white dudes. Okay, how do I move? Press the button, he said. Tell him you have to leave. The cell had an intercom button that could call the officers in the control center but I'd been schooled in four months at the county jail that under no circumstances was a prisoner to ever involve officers in anything between prisoners. I had to stand up and face whatever situation on my own. In addition to not snitching, I'd been warned against backing down from any challenge. I'm not pressing the button. My statement was firm. My voice was weak. If you're in here at lock-in, I'm going to hurt you. He stormed out the door. I didn't know what to do. I sat there, terrified. Four hours later, lock-in came the announcement over the cell block intercoms, and my cellmate returned. I got a closer look at him. Long, scraggly, dirty blonde hair, unshaven, missing teeth, maybe from drug use, maybe from fighting. He had hate tattooed across his knuckles, H-A-T-E. A swastika was tattooed on his neck. You going to leave? He asked. I can't. He sat down on his bunk. It seemed to be a reprieve. Perhaps I already passed the test and he would leave me alone since I've stood my ground. What I didn't know then was that correctional institutions have multiple count times, day and night, to tally the imprisoned. Officers go cell to cell counting prisoners to make sure the numbers are correct. As soon as the officer walked by, my cellmate stood up and turned to where I was leaning against the sink. Push the button, he ordered. No. Suddenly, it seemed like lightning hit my eye. Then again, and again, before I realized it, he'd hit me three times. I swung back aimlessly, 
falling in the space between the sink and the bunk where I couldn't move away from him. He rained down punches. I couldn't breathe or wiggle free. He stopped and stood over me, breathing heavy, pressed the button, jumping up, dizzy, gasping for air and bleeding from a busted lip and a cut above my eye. I responded with dread. I can't. He hit me again. I tried to fight back, but I was down on the floor, once again under his control. When it comes to grappling, pushing, and punching in a confined space, the heavier, stronger man has the advantage. I was then a skinny kid, 6'2", 162 pounds. He had the muscle. He had the weight. He beat me three times that night. He beat me until he got tired. He had wanted to kill me. I'd wanted to be dead. Neither of us slept that night. He laid awake reading. I sat on my bunk, injured, panicked by his every move. The doors opened for breakfast. And before I left, he warned, if you come back in here again, I'm going to send you to the hospital. I left to go find a weapon. Shortly after breakfast, I was approached by a stocky black prisoner who stood close to six feet tall with a short afro and a close cropped goatee. He introduced himself as Top Rock. He told me he was in the cell next door and wanted to know why we were fighting. After that, I guess Top Rock, Top Rock went and spoke with both black and white prisoners in the unit. I don't know what was said, but shortly after the breakfast trays were picked up, Top Rock went into the cell and attacked the guy who'd punched me around all night. Ironically, the hate-knuckled guy violated the prisoner's code, pressed the intercom button, and got transferred to another cell. In the prison culture, I gained respect from the rest of the unit for standing my ground, and the other guy lost respect for breaking the code. That was 20 years ago. And sadly, the rules and codes remain the same. The guy below me is being beaten for not backing down. I listen and remember the street scene. I listen and remember seeing the body of my grandpa's second wife hitting the floor in the living room. I stifled my tears. 13 was too old to cry. I listen and remember the street scenes, violent street scenes. Here in prison, we commit violence toward each other, adhering to codes that perpetuate disempowerment. We undermine our collective potential with destructive behaviors we confuse for strength. This hurting of another human being, a stranger, none of my business, bothered me. The fighting below me stops. I try to return to normal and push the fight and memories from my mind, but I can't. I feel connected to the guy below me. He won't sleep tonight and he won't turn to the cops out of principle and he will suffer because he can't think of any other way to resolve it. Cell fights are so common that at least for the last decade, they stopped registering as an event in my mind. Cruelty had become, cruelty had become an accepted reality. Yet I can't seem to push this one from my thoughts. My breath quickens. I try to choke back tears. Crying is not something you do in prison. Here, the only socially acceptable emotions are anger and frustration. I thought about the last time I allowed myself to cry. It had been years. I began sobbing. I could think of no reason why I was experiencing any sensitivity now. I'd seen men knocked unconscious by prisoners and passed by without offering aid. 
I've seen officers slam old men to the concrete and did not intervene. Just the way it is, the prisoner mantra goes. The young man in the cell below was concerned about living through the night. I was concerned about my sanity. I've watched people's mental health snap in what seemed to be an instant. I remember Christopher, a college student prior to prison who was smart and engaging and seemed to be doing better than most when he arrived. His beautiful brunette girlfriend rode a bike to visit him daily. and His family came often. His interests were philosophy and economics. He was a tutor in my college class until the angels began speaking to him so incessantly that he banged his head into a bloody mess on the cell wall. If my sanity snapped and I broke down over cruelties witnessed here, I would never stop weeping. The sense of helplessness would enslave me in an environment whose roughness rubs tender spots raw. This place isn't safe for emotional sensitivity. I considered interviewing on the new guy's behalf, the way Top Rock had for me. I considered intervening on the new guy's behalf, the way Top Rock had for me. But I had vowed years ago to live my life in amends and avoid causing further harm. Two days passed without incident. The lockdown ended and things returned to the routine absurdness considered normal. But I didn't go back to normal. Questions regarding my sanity plagued me. Anxiety was starting to swell up as I kept finding myself emotionally rocked by things I normally would ignore, like people ridiculing handicaps or the crying departures of kids leaving the visiting room. But the day I got choked up over Canadian goose entangled in the razor wire, I knew I needed help. While the prison itself is inherently unsafe, there were spaces offering support through various programs, services, and activities. There are writers groups, 12-step programs, support circles, group therapies, classes, and religious events. These, space, these spaces provide fellowship and support from peers, also seeking personal growth and a sense of community. I joined a trauma transformation group that explored the dynamics of trauma while celebrating human resilience and intrinsic health. For 18 months, we, six men, created a space that disrupted the prison's habitual numbness and routine. And I discovered that the heightened sensitivity I was experiencing was actually a sign of recovery, a resensitization that indicated I had healed enough from previous traumas that I no longer disconnected from my feelings. My earliest responses to trauma had been to walling off to keep my feelings. But I'd spent the last decade repairing and establishing close relationships in personal life that restored my emotional health and sense of connection. Come to realize that feelings are what make me human, I began celebrating those emotions. I began writing poetry, essays, and plays. I volunteered to help sick prisoners and tutor students. Understanding I have agency and can use my voice in advocacy, I began speaking nonviolence among violent friends, questioning the norms of destruction, asking why prisoners fight over crumbs instead of preparing to benefit our families and communities. I don't know whatever became of the men who were fighting, but I know now it's possible for events that initially seem overwhelming to become the catalyst for personal growth, recovery, and evolution. I now mourn every cell fight. Grateful, I'm not too numb to feel sorrow, to cry. Thank you, can you hear me, Kate?
Thank you I so much. I can hear much. you. So much to you, Robbie, Pen America. I mean, thank you, Sam Aaron. That was incredible. Yes, flip. What's the flip? Aaron Samuels. Aaron Samuels. Sorry. That was a cute <laughs> nickname. I like that. <laughs> Sometimes I get things backwards, right? So, I'll get, I'll get. Yeah, thank you. That was incredible, man. That was really incredible. Thank y'all for including me in this. Thank you for the students. And just real quick, I was listening to the MC and it kind of came to me something that I wanted to do right in the moment because uh, yesterday I, I heard a story about a guy named Yuri who has, he does his tillum and he's been doing it since he was 13 and because of his COVID, he ain't, he ain't, been, a, he ain't been able to do it. So as people have been asking for people to do good deeds in, in honor of him. And then when I was listening to y'all, what I want to do came to me. I'm going to personally pledge 500 to the baby mama, uh, what you call it? What was it again? Black baby mama's mama. bailout. Black mama's bailout. Yeah. I, I pledge 500. So, and if I could do it from in here, I know some more people could do it from out there. Let's get more than a thousand. Let's like maybe 1.5 million, all right? <laughs> thank uh, you so much. Oh my God. Cool. And thank y'all. Thank y'all. And y'all do a good deed for Yuri too. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. That is true. We are so grateful. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. Um, wow, I'm sorry to move. Okay. Uh, next up, we have Liza Jesse Peterson presenting. Liza Jesse Peterson is an artivist, an actress, playwright, author, and poet. Her critically acclaimed one-woman show, The Peculiar Patriot, premiered at the National Black Theater in Harlem, was nominated for a Drama Desk Award and received a generous grant from Agnes Gunn's prestigious Art for Justice Fund. Liza performed The Peculiar Patriot in over 35 penitentiaries across the country for over a span of three years. She recently performed it at Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana for a live audience of over 700 men and was live streamed throughout the entire prison, which is currently in development for a documentary. Liza is author of All Day, A Year of Love and Survival Teaching Incarcerated Kids at Rikers Island, published by Hachet Publishing. She was featured in Ava DuVernay's The 13th and was a consultant on Bill Moyer's documentary Rikers by BBS. Liza, take it away. Wow, this is really powerful. Thank you for having me. Um, and um, I'm happy to be a part of this um, sacred circle and sacred community. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from my one woman show, The Peculiar Patriot which um, I've performed um, all over, um, imprisoned in off-Broadway um, theaters, and um, most recently was performed at um, Angola Penitentiary. Um, and so the play, the play takes place um, at, a correction, at a women's correctional facility, and you're eavesdropping in on the conversation between two best friends. So my character, Betsy Laquanda Ross, is visiting her best friend, Joanne. And so um, this is the conversation 
between um, Betsy and Joanne. Um, so this is an excerpt. Girl, God bless the internet. Call me Google Mommy. You are not gonna believe this. Girl, this prison shit really is slavery. Like, it ain't a metaphor. Girl, they got this shit hooked up. It's a damn racket. Private companies, corporations, own some of these prisons, meaning I could go down to Wall Street today and I can invest in some stock in a private prison and I can make some money off of your black ass sitting right here, right now. Girl, the privatizations of prisons is financially driven, accumulating huge profits up in this piece. Trust and believe, most of y'all niggas sitting up in here ain't for punishment. Y'all sit up in here for profit. Girl, states pay private companies to run the prison at a cheaper cost. But here's the T. The state has to guarantee to keep the beds fully occupied or else the private company charges a penalty fee for the empty beds. So you know the state gonna make sure them beds stay filled and you know that private company gonna make sure y'all stay, y'all keep y'all here as long as possible. And the company, they get to hire cheap, cheap labor. So they don't have to worry about a, a, a workers' comp or sick pay or labor unions. Girl, it's a corporate wet dream. The telephone companies alone are making billions, billions just off of the telephone calls. Not to mention the construction company contracts, the people that build the prisons. That's a multi-million dollar contract. The company that makes that jumpsuit you're wearing and skippies on your feet, that's a multi-million dollar contract. All them cookies and potato chips and hair grease and, and toothpaste, all that shit you'll be buying in commissary, that's a multi-million dollar contract. Plus, the CEOs, the judges, the lawyers, the DA, the cops, the bus companies, the electricians, Niggas is keeping a lot of motherfuckers on the payroll. Soon as you hear the handcuffs go ka-clink, you hear the cash register go cha-ching, ka-clink, cha-ching. Huh. Ain't got the nerve to have y'all up in here working, making products for 15, 20 cents an hour, like it's Taiwan. Made in prison is the new China. Girl and them, me and Pablo, we watched this ill documentary the other day it was about this judge in pennsylvania who was getting paid by a private prison to sentence kids to their facility to keep the beds filled them numbers baby i'm telling you it's a damn racket yo kids was being sentenced for bullshit like stealing a cd at walmart or, or having a fight at school Something like 3,000 kids. Yes, girl. Kids for cash. That was the name of it. And the judge got caught and they sentenced him to 28 years. Thank God it made it to the news. But then I was like, how many thousands of us is being sold down the river 
And ain't nobody going to ever know because it don't never make it to the news. Huh. Thank you. All that shit is domestic terrorism, if you ask me. Huh. Right after 9-11, everybody was running around talking about Al-Qaeda this and Al-Qaeda that. Huh. Black people, we wasn't never worried about no ISIS or no damn Al-Qaeda. We worried about Al-Cracker, but not no Al-Qaeda. And Bin Laden, he had more videos out than Beyonce. And they couldn't find his ass for eight fucking years. But they found that oil on day one, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Then they started their war in Iraq, and they got paid like a motherfucker. Because it was only about the oil any damn way. That's the only thing this country care about is the almighty dollar. And war is big business. And if we're at war, which we most certainly are, I done earned my stripes. I done served my country very well during these war times, supporting our urban militia, uh, our urban street soldiers, formerly in the trenches on the front lines of Red Hook, Bed-Stuy, Queens, Bridge, Jamaica Ave, Harlem World, Boogie Down Bronx, Gun Hill Road, Long Island. You feel me? I'm serving at Yankee motherfucking doodle dandy up in this piece. I'm a true patriot. A real patriot. A Harriet Tubman. Huh. Have you clutching your pearls type patriot. Original black warrior queen. Wild woman who runs with the wolves and underground railroads type patriot. So that's a little excerpt. Thank you so much. Hey, <laughs> I had to do that because I can't really do that on chat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Carlos Andres Gomez, who will be reading the work of The Bachelor. The Bachelor is the co-founder of Stillwater Writers Collective, member of the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, and has won multiple awards from the Pen America Annual Prison Writing Contest. His poetry has been published in Columbia, a journal of literature and art, Cream City Review, The Laurel Review, and other journals. He is currently working on his debut poetry collection. You can read an amazing interview with B at pen.org slash works of justice, and you can write to him at bbachelor0717 at gmail.com. Carlos Andres Gomez is a Colombian American poet from New York City and the author of Fractures, published by the University of Wisconsin Press 2020. Selected by Natasha Trudeway as the writer of the 2020 Felix Pollock Prize in Poetry, a star of HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam, Carlos is a proud poppy of two. Take it away. Issa, thank you so much for, for hosting and for, and for um, inviting me to be a part of this. Thank you, Dr. Witherspoon, Kate, everybody from CUDA and PEN America. Um, big shout out to B. Bachelor for um, allowing me the honor of reading his, uh, his breathtaking work. This first poem is called A Discourse on Why Inmates Exit Prison Worse Than When They Went In. Bet you thought there was no such thing as too kind. I can't write it into this poem without admitting kindness is a synonym for too close. When it's nectared syllables sap these prison walls, oh kindness. Lotus flowering muddy waters, I can't call on your greening nature. 
your bloom that fruits into song, into breath, in a place rotting under unnatural light, where a staff member who's friendly toward inmates is slurred a murder groupie, asked if they've hugged their thug today, where they are disciplined for embracing the blues out of an inmate, compassioning the self back into the self, making him a tower of human. Those five seconds of what miracles amaze worth of good seeds back into a chest is an offense here, dear reader. I remember when humanness lived inside my body like a community garden, every visitor welcomed and nourished in their coming and going, all those bright hues among us, but goddamn if our bodies haven't become borders. I have let napweed root and wrangle what will no longer grow. And this second poem by B. Bachelor is called Apology in Defeat. White boxers torn and knotted around broken and taped together plastic hangers in a makeshift pole become a sign of surrender I wave through my bars. Brothers, we share a creased history of hatred between our brows, form thin and slack lips as protest when force-fed the stale bread of promised reform. We have commingled too long in the mangle of discarded bodies justice has made us. I swear I've worn the thick hide that makes men tough to chew, withstood the razor wire gnashing of this prison's feasting, its decades fevered with a marinade of my proud bones. I have made a skimpy meal, feeding on bitter skins I peel from the curdled mess of what persists, the constant punishment and punishment. I'm sorry. I have grown lean from eating defeat. Um, this is the last poem I'm going to read from B. Bachelor. Uh, again, huge thank you to Kate Meisner, who I've known forever, uh, Dr. Nia Witherspoon, everyone at PEN America and at CUDA, Fordham University. Shout out to Aaron, who I've known forever, Lisa and Nicole, um, Louise, um, Isa. And of course, big shout out to B. Bachelor, um, incredibly honored, Sterling and everybody, all your compadres over there in Oregon, sending you all a lot of love. Um, and uh, this final poem by B. B. Bachelor is called The Self as a Contradiction. After seeing a photo of me for the first time, my love's dad squints behind glasses at his daughter's phone, shapes preconceptions from his seen-it-all silver hair, says, I'm too much of a pretty boy to be in prison. It's a shame, he tells his eldest, who calls me a beautiful man, even though she knows the raked mess composting my history, the stench seeping through dark earth I've swallowed, 
to ghost what I still can't confront after 18 years. I want to tell her dad I'm a deception and as confused as he is, that I'm in perpetual proximity to the once me. No, I am not innocent. I am not innocent. Truth is, I'm a good gardener and prune my faults perfect to offset the off smell. I'm a bouquet stunning every fresh grave, taming all that ugly boxed in buffed wood the sun will never shine. I'm just another attractive exterior, distracting from what refuses to make sense. It's simply a matter of nature how my love's dad interprets my face, how the sun I hardly ever feel keeps me young, preserves the youth I wore to prison as a teenage lifer, how I am only a trick of no light. Thank you all so much. Honored to be included and involved. Thank you so much for reading for us and for sharing. Uh, next up, we have Nicole Schwann Jr. Uh, Nicole is a Black, queer, and justice-involved counter-storyteller. Her writing appears in Emerge, the Lambda Literary Anthology, as well as Gay Mag, Zora, The Feminist Wire, Color Block, For Harriet, and more. A breadloaf and Hurston Wright alum, Nicole's received literary residencies and fellowships from various arts organizations, including Hedgebrook, the New York Foundation for the Arts, Lambda Literary, and Sundress Academy for the Arts. Nicole's completing Cracked Concrete, a memoir of crackheads, cousins, and crime. She's the creator of both The Roots, Wounds, Words, Writing Workshop, and Counterpult, a Brooklyn-based reading series that centers QT, BIPOC storytellers. Nicole, take it away. Thank you so much. Yo, um, so, I had like this introduction written, um, but being in this space, I just feel like it has to come from the heart. So yo, uh, Dr. Nia Witherspoon, thank you for putting this together. Thank you for all the work that you do for community always, fam. Um, I just have so much gratitude for you. And I know that you being in my life is a blessing. Mad love to Kate Meissner and the partner in all things prison writing, Robbie Pollock, for all the work that y'all are doing. I'm so happy that this was able to come together and that I'm a part of this special curation. Um, real quick, this is kind of like a full circle homecoming for me because before I was a felon, before I had a, a rap sheet and all of that stuff, I taught law at Fordham Law and I also led up the uh, mock trial team at Fordham University. And so this is kind of like ill to be back on the other side and participating in Fordham in this way, right? Um, so with that said, I am going to read an excerpt from a creative nonfiction essay um, that is in this issue, Reverb of Cura Mag. Uh, it's called A List of Violations. Here I go. After I pled guilty to telecommunications fraud in the Cuyahoga County courtroom, and the judge sentenced me to 18 months of probation, my lawyer cuffed my arm into his hand and ushered me into the elevator. Julie will take care of you. She's the best probation officer there is, he said, shifty-eyed and ready to be rid of me. I stared past puffy eyelids at the closing elevator doors, petrified of what was to come. 
you're gonna be all right, probation officer Julie Fritz assured. Not even 20 minutes after my guilty plea, I sat hushed in her court building office chair. Flimsy tissue pieces speckled the cold black eyeliner and mascara that raccooned my eyes. You had the best judge there is, she went on, a wide smile and chestnut hair framing her face, all Kathy Bates in misery style. I had another judge who did time for beating his wife, nearly killed her. He came out and now he works for the mayor. No, he isn't making the money he once did, but he's got a decent living, she offered all earnest. My mouth stayed shut. I thought about the judge's, judge's wife. Here are the conditions of your probation, Fritz said, thrusting a thin solitary sheet my way. Just sign it and I'll give you a copy. I'd been a public interest trial attorney for a decade. For almost half of that time, I prosecuted domestic violence crimes ranging from simple misdemeanors to attempted murders, ones like the assault Fritz described. My legal training mandated that I read every word on the page, but it was difficult. The tears I poured throughout my court proceeding as I thought about my mother watching me proclaim myself a felon and be sentenced to state control after the decades of shit I ate to accomplish my poverty-inspired dream of lawyering for the oppressed resumed. I tried as best I could to follow the letters, the dashes, and the sentences that laid out the conditions of my probation. My eyes struggled when reading the new title after my name, Felon. Eventually, I came to the list that would rule my life for the next year and a half. Report weekly to probation officer, pay supervision fines, fees, or other fees ordered by the court, pay court costs and restitution, not commit any new crimes, report any interaction with law enforcement, not change residence without permission, not leave the county of residence without written permission, find and maintain regular employment, not possess firearms, not possess any other dangerous weapons, not associate with persons who have criminal records, not use drugs or alcohol, obey all state and local laws, permit probation officer to visit the probationer or the probationer's residence, permit Permit probation officer to visit the probationer's work site, submits a testing of breath or urine for controlled substances or alcohol, not have direct contact with any elderly person, not have direct contact with any child you know or reasonably should know to be under the age of 18. It says I can't be around children, I uttered, much more shocked inquiry than a confident statement. Yeah, don't worry about that, Fritz assured while shuffling a stack of papers on her desk. There's a method to my madness, you know. You'd think I couldn't find anything in here, but I know what it all, where it all is, she said to her desk. But if I can't be around kids, I can't teach. It's just standard language, she interrupted. New York's gonna supervise you. Your New York PO will let you know what your conditions are. With that, she turned her attention back to the paper piles. I was dismissed from her concern while welcomed to the world of state monitoring and control. I fisted the thin pen and signed the paper. Crimson hoodies bunched around necks, maroon laces weaved through scarlet kicks, and denim jeans patched with candy apple squares dominated the New York City Department of Probation's 345 Adams Street waiting room. It had been almost an hour since I first sat in the pool of bloods when a straight-backed Latinx woman with not a single piece of paper in her hands called my name, Nicole Jr. I gathered my purse and approached her with my hand outstretched. Good afternoon, I said. She stared at my hand and hesitated before taking it in her own and returning the greeting. A blink later, her back was before me as she walked along the corridor that led to her office. 
I took the hint and followed. Seated behind her paper-crowded desk, she introduced herself as Officer Jimenez. So what happened? She asked before bunching her hands into a clap. I explained what led to my travels to Cleveland, the job offer that included a relocation bonus, my acceptance that requested its upfront disbursement, the mandate that it be reimbursed, the reality that I couldn't afford to relocate out of pocket, the crime that I doctored travel expense receipts to move. Hmm. Her brows bunched into cuffs as she let out a questioning exhale. Says here, you can't be around kids. What's that about? I don't know. My Cleveland PO told me that it was just boilerplate form language and that you, my PO here, would change it. Hmm. Again. Only time I seen that is when there was a sex offense with a minor. She, says her, she said as her eyes squinted into disbelief, her mouth pursed into an accusation. What? I asked as anxiety began to stew belly deep. Afraid to push back for fear of seeming resistant, non-compliant, deserving of being thrown in prison, I barely spoke louder than a whisper. But her accusation triggered my own questioning. What did I plead guilty to? Did my lawyer conspire with the court to deceive me? Reality became a blur of bars and cuffs and sentences. Did I plead guilty to harming a child? Am I a convicted sex offender? Don't you have my file? I mustered the courage to ask for both her clarity and my own. With shackled certainty, I whispered, I committed mail fraud. These things take time, with you being from Cleveland and all. I don't have your full file, but they'd only include that if you committed a crime against a kid. She would not be moved. I don't know, but she cut me off again. Oh, don't worry. I will find out what you did. Officer Jimenez stared at me and spoke, stared at me and spoke some more. Thoughts raced through my mind, my clammy fists wrapped around my purse straps as she rattled off a list of things for me to do. Don't be around children of any kind, related or not, that can get you violated. Write down the names of everyone you live with, phone numbers too, no kids, right? Don't drink or use drugs, you'll be tested, a dirty test will get you violated. Report every week right here, failure to show, you'll be violated. Make sure to arrive between 8 a.m. and 1 p.m., always come on a Thursday, don't do anything that'll get you violated. But violated was all I'd been since being caught up in the criminal justice system's clutches, and my psychological state was waiting room bloodied because of it. After riding down the elevator from Jimenez's office, I spilled onto Adams Street and pulled myself from my purse before typing, CU. Cuyahoga County Criminal Court docket auto-populated into my browser, a telltale sign that I'd visited the website almost every day since learning I was indicted in 2017, that prior year. But because of the anxiety induced by seeing my name, birth date, and criminal charges on the public site, I hadn't visited it since I pled guilty earlier in the month. I clicked on the link landed in the online court docket, entered my name, and scanned the page devoted to my case, letter by letter, word by word, line by line. Case number, CR 17623472A, status, case closed, judge name, Dick Ambrose, arresting agency, Cleveland Police, defendant number 1423-0570, name, Nicole Jr., race, black, sex, female, date of birth, 12-1980, charges, indict, 2913.42.A1 tampering with records indict 2913.05.A telephone 
telecommunications fraud, indict 2913.31A2 forgery, indict 2913.42A1 tampering with records, indict 2913.05A telecommunications fraud, indict 2913.31A forgery, indict 2913.42A1 tampering with records, pled guilty 2913.05.A telecommunications fraud. The website confirmed I was a criminal, but not a child predator. I knew this, of course, but then again, I did not. Now that I was on felony probation, truth was refracted. Violations were the only thing clear, compounded on top of an inherent sense of guilt and criminality that I, like most poverty-born Black American people, carried since birth due to chattel slavery's genetic imprint. Once I found out I was indicted, I lacked the discernment to tell truth from reality perception from fact. Even when I said guilty, your honor, in that American flag cloaked court, I struggled with the words and the truth of it. Yes, I was guilty of forging travel receipts. Yes, I was guilty of delivering those receipts to Cleveland's Treasury Department via email. Yes, I sought up front assistance for job relocation, but also yes, I did so because I couldn't afford the move on my own. Student loan and its consequential credit card debt claimed most of my income. Yes, I did so because I wanted to do the job, the job well. Yes, I did so because I thought who would care when I would in fact use the money for its intended purpose to move to Cleveland to perform a job few others were committed to or as equipped to perform. Yes, my probation officer was wrong. I wasn't a child molester though. Yes, she was right. I was a criminal. I am privileged. I was a decade-long prosecutor. I know how to decipher criminal codes. I can research and assess case law. I can analyze and argue legal theory. Theory, I am fluent in legalese. I know how to read. I know my way around a courtroom. I hold a bachelor's of art, a graduate degree in education, and a law degree. I have better than average comprehension and logic skills. I own a laptop and a laser jet printer. I know how to advocate for myself. I have stable, a stable place to live. I have a wide network of friends. I have supportive parents and family. I was able to have several sessions with a therapist while I was on probation. I can discern systemic oppression's tentacles. I understand my intersectionality as a poverty-born Black queer femme. I know where I stand within oppression's grip. I know how to participate in respectability politics. I can control my triggered desire to flip the fuck out. I accrued a quarter million dollars in student loan debt to acquire most of those privileges. Yet despite this long list, I still could not manage the psychological, financial, emotional, and societal traumas that were unleashed when I became a felon. When absent-mindedly jaywalking, I panicked that the police would pull me over and arrest me. When lawfully changing lanes while driving, I worried that the police would pull me over and arrest me. Once, when walking to my neighborhood gym without state identification on me, I broke into a sweat for, for fear that the police would pull me over and arrest me. When arriving late to see my PO because a paying gig ran late, I worried that she would pull out the cuffs and arrest me. The thought of being violated held hostage every second of the time I spent under state control. The dread of it caused my blood pressure to rise, my reasoning ability to decline, and my capacity for self-advocacy to dissipate. It still does. Most categorized as felon, criminal, or predator do not have my privileges. That in and of itself is a fucking violation. As a consequence of this systemic disempowerment, they, we, are all fucked. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicole, for, for reading, for sharing your work. 
Uh, before we continue, we just wanted to announce really quick that the GoFundMe is currently up to $465. So thank you for, to everyone who has added and donated so far. And this is before we even um, include Sterling's donation. So again, thank you guys so much. I'm, I'm going to be including the um, link one more time in the chat for anyone who might have missed it earlier. But just again, thank thank everybody for, again, just for being here and also for helping us um, support this cause. Okay, um, moving on to the next artist, or our, actually our final artist, Justin Hicks um, will be performing for us. Justin Hicks is a multidisciplinary artist, songwriter, and performer whose work has been featured at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, Performance Space New York, the Public Theater, Jack, National Black Theater, MoMA, Festival Streicher Herbst in Graz, Austria, Western Front Society in Vancouver, Mass MoCA, the Whitney Museum of American Art, Nottingham Contemporary in the UK, the High Line, the Institute for Contemporary Art in Philadelphia, and the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, among others. He has collaborated with notable visual artists, musicians, and theater makers, including Abigail DeVille, Charlotte Brathwaite, Keneza Shaw, Michelle Nindocello, Hilton Alls, Colleen Smith, Helga Davis, Chris Myers, and Aisha Jordan. Hicks was a Drama Desk-nominated composer for Malima's Tale in Lynn Nottage, the Public Theater 2018, directed by Joe Bonney, and was a member of Carl Walker's six to eight month space. He holds a culinary diploma from ICE in New York City. Justin was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and is based in the Bronx, New York. And you can find his work at justinhicksmusic.com. Justin, take it away. Hello. Hello. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Great. Okay. Uh, we're going to do a little tune from a piece I created uh, that kind of celebrates a new mm, take on what it means to be a hero and what it means to need a hero. And... Um, we kind of use the life of the legendary Bass Reeves as a model for a new way to think about law enforcement and a, and a new way to think about who's there to help versus who is there to uh, hinder us in our progress. To put it very simply, I guess. Here we go. Have to get to the place we go to find our most remarkable, principled, correct, clever pa. Imagine up the one who could pick off an outlaw from 400 yards and they'd never know what took them. <gasps> Imagine up the law who always brought in the wanted, alive rather than dead. <gasps> a fabulous law, a fabulous law.
Oh my God. <laughs> um, I am breathless right now. Um, I'm breathless. That was um, the way that that sound just held all of what we just heard, that the way that that sound just held all of the sounds um, and all of the words and all of the voices. I'm, I'm so full um, and grateful um, to everyone, <laughs> to everyone right now. Um, we need art. We need art so badly. It's the only way we're going to move through any of this. So I'm just um, really, really touched by uh, the opportunity to remember that again. Um, we are running a little bit over, but uh, we still have a panel uh, where the students and I and, and the folks from Penn, Kate and Robbie um, would like to chat about our process in making all of this. Um, so we can do that. Uh, I was gonna give a break, but I think maybe it's best to just move right through um, just so that we have y'all out by a reasonable time and we don't keep you too much longer. Also so that the, the Zoom doesn't shut down on us. I don't actually know like how much extra time I gave it. So I wanna make sure that we, we move forward into that. And again, just expressing so much gratitude to um, the folks, all of, all, of the, all of what you just heard is in the, this issue of Cura, which is incredible. And also so much more uh, is in this, this issue of Cura. So we really encourage you to check it out, share it, show it love, like share it on social media. It's all free content. Um, and hopefully folks can use this as a teaching tool, whether that's formal teaching, you know, whether you are a teacher yourself or informal teaching in your own, in your own conversations with your, your family and your friends and, and your community members, right? This is not, um, there should be no limit to this river. Um, so yeah, let's, um, so at this time, I'll just call up to our uh, virtual stage, um, Kate and Robbie and Liam, um, and um, Amanda, please. And Issa will continue to be a boss facilitator um, and move us through uh, this set of questions that we uh, are gonna chat about. If First, if everyone that's on the panel could just introduce yourself, your name and your role, that would be awesome. Uh, hi everyone, I'm Liam Ryder. I was a student editor for this edition along with Michaela Connolly. Um, I am a junior at Fordham and I'm majoring in English and a double majoring in English and new media and digital design. And Robbie Hi. Pollock, overwhelmed right now, <laughs> honestly. Uh, hi, I'm Amanda. Um, I'm a sophomore at Fordham and I'm a new media and digital design major. Um, I was on the marketing team and I was a member of the group that pitched Just Mercy to the class. Hi folks, I'm Kate Meissner. I'm the Prison and Justice Writing Program Director at Pan America, also an artist and writer myself, as is Robbie, who, who didn't say so, but um, I wanted to just uplift that. And uh, I also think this was just an unbelievably emotional experience for me. I was crying at multiple parts uh, of today, which doesn't always happen. Uh, so thank you. And I also wanted to just say, uh, I think we can keep this section informative, but fairly brief to honor that people, you know, need to jump off. Um, but I think we, sh we should go for it. 
same, agree. Um, so I will do kind of a, um, a summary version of just letting you know what the process was to get here. And then I just want to get quickly to opening it up to student, uh, to, to, to the questions from ESA that the students made for themselves. The shouts out to the community engagement team uh, for contributing these questions so that we could talk about our process in public. Um, so that you know what the process was, basically um, uh, students read three different books, Just Mercy was one of the books. Um, they chose the spaces where they were feeling the most pulled to argue that the, this Kira issue should be about this theme. Uh, so Just Mercy was one of the books to talk about mass incarceration. Uh, the other two were Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. Uh, and um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. So three very, very different books that uh, students could engage with. And then they each had to pitch um, why the class uh, should focus on that theme for this particular issue. Um, the Just Mercy team, which was, I will note, the smallest team um, of people actually won over the entire class and got the most votes for this being what we would focus our, our issue on. Um, from then on, it was a process of figuring out what within mass incarceration and also like what we really wanted to um, say and the students uh, in Just Mercy came up with uh, think, us thinking about voice. That was something that they kept returning to. Um, and so then it became really a question of doing research, you know, watching things like 13th, talking about the ethics of representation. Um, by virtue of different examples. And then students had to do their own um, trending now blog. So each student had to kind of become a journalist or an expert in one aspect of what they wanted to focus on uh, in terms of mass incarceration. And those are also published. We went through a rigorous editing process and those are also published. So the, the research was individual and collective. And then aside from that, because we were on a publication deadline, I mean, a lot of times the learning was in process, like different issues would come up as we're thinking about what should the title be, as we're thinking about what should the imagery be like, as we're thinking about who should be included in this. And so I'd like for the students to, to share more about that as we move forward. Um, but that basically, um, that basically summarizes the process. So Issa, if you wanna just jump in with the student questions, maybe just pick a couple and then we'll go from there. Okay, just to, we already we touched a little bit on the first question, so I think we'll jump to like the second one. What for the students on the panel and for you too, professor? Um, what does the title, or for, I guess for everyone really, um, what does the title reverberate mean to you, and how did you come up with it? So the title process was a democratic process for the entire class, as most things. So we spent a couple classes brainstorming ideas. This was association of our theme. And then we would vote on those ideas and kind of challenge and back them up. And I think after a couple of days, I think it was Orla who recommended Reverberate and that got the most votes that resonated with everyone a lot. I think personally to me, uh, like in acoustics, Reverberate or Reverberation is the persistence of sound after the sound has been made. So I think with this issue, we wanted the power of the voices to be the chance to amplify, um, to be able to persist in the communities we reach through our audience and their hearts and minds, not just for the power, of their writing and expression, but also for the conditions of injustice that they surround, and in that way, be able to enact change. If, all right, just to uh, keep it moving, if no one else has um, anything to say on the title of Reverberate, the next question um, has to do with the cover art. So what, 
do you guys on the panel believe that the cover art represents and what was the inspiration for it? Well, we were originally grappling with a lot of uh, sound waves and we wanted to incorporate an aspect of human and people into our title. So what we did, I think Sarah came up with an idea that where we put in uh, sound waves into a person. And so we have two people face, uh, facing each other on the title and then they're actually uh, formed by sound waves. So it was this idea that the stories and voices of people really create this wave of like echoing of voices and stories, which is really powerful, which really um, tied in with our title reverberate. Let's um, maybe move to um, thinking about the, some of the editorial challenges. Um, so what things did, did we come across that were hard for us to grapple with as we were making the selections? And then also that will give a chance for, um, for Penn, for Kate and Robbie to weigh in around how, how writers and how editors can some approach these issues in your own work. Yes, I can take this. Um, I think one of the issues we grappled with was a little bit was walking the line between curation and censorship. And there was some things we tackled with, uh, grappled with with that, having representation from a lot of demographics. And there was one instance where I think someone Googled one of the contributors who was incarcerated and it came into question knowing their crimes now, we couldn't unknow them and how that ties into our theme. And if we wanted that knowledge to influence our decision, if that would be fair. And I think with insight from Kate's and Penn, we decided to not let that happen. And I think they can speak a little more to that. Sure, and, and thank you to folks who stayed on. We, we really wanted to bring some of these moments to light because they're really teachable moments and, and not just for student teams, but also for any artists looking to work through the walls. And Robbie, I invite you to, of course, join me on this question or this, this situation. And, uh, and I visited the class um, which was a wonderful experience. And when this came up, I, I nodded my head and said, oh yes, we come across this almost constantly in our mentor program and also with other people we partner with, this question of, I feel really uncomfortable now with, with what someone's crime was. And interestingly, in this set of readings we heard today, almost every piece actually mentioned the crime that the person had committed. People were sort of self-disclosing in this work, but that of course does not always happen. People write about many things and should write about many things other than their crime. So uh, natural human curiosity peaks, people do the Google search, all of this is normal, but then you run up against the ethical wall of how do I grapple with this? And, uh, and what I told the students uh, from my perspective is that it's important to grapple with. We, people have done difficult things often. Uh, we can't pretend that's not the case. But at the same time, uh, we really work not to Google people and writers uh, and, and to read their crime because that's not our role. Our role is curators looking at work. But of course, also in the world, there's a charge to take into account identity and people's lived experience uh, for, for myriad of reasons that we're well aware of. So this sort of ethical sticky point uh, becomes really tacky. And the place I've come to as a curator who works, you know, in the space every day is to really think about uh, 
what my goal is. And my goal is to move people away from the identity that is not a powerful identity. It's not an identity that can really be flipped positively as many other identities can in writing and to move towards the humanity of the piece and to really stay in that space. Because also in terms of thinking about and drawing a line ethically about who I will work with and who I will not, I start to become a judge. I don't know the full story. I don't know the person's background. I don't know their perspective on, on the crime if I've read just the uh, legal report online or the news report. There's so much information that's missing. And also where on that spectrum, also as a, as a community organization, would it be appropriate to draw the line? It starts to become much more, um, it's, it's not clean cut, it's nuanced. So, so the way that I've dealt with it is to say that we don't, we don't that's not part of our, our dialogue. And then we sort of grappled with that in terms of the student work. And uh, Dr. Witherspoon had a, a wonderful idea, which was uh, framing the issue and being able to talk about that fact. We don't always agree with perspectives in the work. We don't always agree, or we feel a sense of discomfort around maybe some of the content at times. But this is, uh, this is a choice we're making to really feature people's work uncensored. I feel like I'm jumping all over the place right now but I hope some nuggets are useful. And Robbie, I'd love to hear uh, from you as well as somebody who is my partner in this work and, and comes across this often with our mentors, I think. Oh yeah, I mean, we run into it all the time, but I think actually the work curated and especially the work uh, read today, mar marvelously, um, Nicole's piece, Brian's piece, uh, Sterling's piece, they, they all kind of spoke to this very very critical thing. B. Bachelor says, you know, I am not innocent. And when you think about the idea that whatever percentage of people in prison are uh, not in fact innocent, the fact that their words, thoughts, ideas, feelings, and humanity could be dismissed out of hand because of whatever line they crossed, whatever the judge decided, um, is ridiculous. That's entire chunks of our population. The fact that all of their families should feel shame when relating any positive progress made by said loved one who is incarcerated. Oh, they wrote a poem. Yeah, well, they're incarcerated. So, you know. Um, so, so I think even just the act of us listening here to people who have questionable backgrounds, some people are assholes. Like, that's just a fact. And they write too. And, um, you know, I always say, I want to hear the manifesto. I want to read the manifesto so I can understand your brand of crazy. Um, and that, that might be an exaggeration, but Kate's is familiar with my ability to exaggerate on this point. Uh, that's all I'm going to say on that. I wanted to say one more thing, Robbie, that you, you brought to mind that I think is important. And, and part of our work at Penn is that we are constantly trying to move towards a world where somebody with justice involvement does not need to carry that stigma and burden for the rest of their lives and are able to be seen as capital W writers in the literary community, which yeah, you pointed to at the beginning, Dr. Witherspoon, excuse me, I'm being informal. Um, so a lot of our work is trying to figure out how do we really put writers next to each other? Where can writers exist outside the space of writing about the issue of incarceration or always being part of a prison writing event, which of course this event is a very powerful 
example of being within that space, and much of our work is as well. But our future vision is always toward this, you know, eradication of the ex-felon writer or the prison writer, or maybe not the eradication, but the room to be more than that. And, you know, do, does that space exist in our current world? Absolutely not, because of the society we live in. But it's always a kind of future vision that we hold and carry. What would that look like? How do we get there? And I think that's part of a larger conversation around exactly what you're doing with this issue, confronting mass incarceration and starting to think about a world beyond prisons. So um, kind of came together for me there. Thank you so much. I'm so lucky to know both of you. Um, and we're lucky as a class that you were able to, to, to gift us with your presence and with your, your kind of you're sitting with all of this for a long time, you know, and working through and working with, not just for a semester, you know. Um, yeah, um, I want to respect time, but I just want to, and, and I think that's actually a really lovely place to close, but I think maybe one thing that would um, be really, uh, one thing that is feels urgent to say, uh, you know, we were able to move forward with the publication of this without a hitch, to some extent, even though some extra labor was involved, but folks that are incarcerated right now are dealing with a whole other level of this global pandemic. And I know that Pan America Prison Writing Program is doing really crucial work to address this. And I just wanted to like shout out and big up the work that you're doing and see if there's anything that you wanna say about it or if there are ways that you want folks uh, and encourage folks to get involved. Um, I'll also make the final plug for Black Women's Bailout they, in 2019, raised over a million dollars and were able to bail out over 123 women. But if you think about that, over a million dollars and 123 women, that money is that money uh, actually doesn't go very far, right? So um, even though it's incredible for us to be able to raise a thousand dollars, just being mindful, like, let's just keep that giving, that circle of giving going. But yes, please, Kate's and Robbie, if, you, if there's anything else you want to add in terms of like, more um, uh, direct sharings that pertain to our current situation. I just wanted to offer space for that. Really appreciate that. And, and it is certainly dire um, and, and, uh, and necessary to be aware of this. I'm putting into the chat box a link. We are doing, it was weekly, now it's more bi-weekly, a series called Temperature Check COVID-19 Behind Bars. It features what we call creative dispatch or a piece of creative reportage from a currently incarcerated writer about the experience of being in prison at this time. And, uh, and also a, a brief podcast interview with a criminal justice reform expert or news reporter or somebody who can offer some insight on advocacy, as well as a roundup of links to advocacy efforts that people can get involved in. So I'll put the link in the, in the chat box. It's pen.org backslash works of justice. You can subscribe to get it in your inbox or follow it there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, thank you again to everyone for being here. And um, yeah, thank you, Robbie, for uplifting that line. Uh, I am not innocent. I think none of us are. And so that there is uh, the thing. Right? And here we are, some of us not incarcerated and some of us are incarcerated. Um, so let's just sit with that. And I wish everybody health and safety uh, during this very strange time and gratitude. Take care, everyone.